and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor. On today's episode, we are going to ask the big question. Is the idea of a global fintech hub dead? Seeing as the entire industry's had to adapt to working fully remotely, we're no longer constrained to hotspots or offices. So what does that mean going forward? Well, joining us today, we have an extremely international group of people. Uh, making some FinTech Insider debut, calling in from the US, we have Marina Gracias, who's general counsel at Varro Money. How are you doing, Marina? Great, thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more about Varro Money? Yes, so Varro Money, is a mission is to help everyday Americans make progress with their financial lives through accessing affordable banking services. We started in 2017 with banking services, helping people make most of their money, regardless of their financial situation or limitation. And we have experienced record growth in 2020 and our customers have been highly receptive to news of our pending charter. We just recently announced in October, we had 1 million customers, which we've nearly doubled now. And our applications have increased almost 70%, and it's costing us roughly half as much to acquire new customers. So we're looking forward to being able to provide more banking services to customers as we move forward into the new world of banking under a banking charter. Absolutely. And good luck then with that, guys. I'm really sort of spearheading uh, a challenger bank movement in the US. So uh, great to see. Uh, Calling in from Singapore, we're happy to be joined by Ned Phillips, who's CEO of Bamboo. Nice to have you here with us, Ned. Uh, Can you introduce Bamboo to us? Sure. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate uh, coming on the show. So yeah, we're based out in Singapore. We we design and build robo-advisors. I remember when I started the company, I was always told, have the one-line elevator pitch and it used to take me about a minute to do it, which was too long. So I used to say we were B2B and digital wealth and got people confused. So I'll try my 10-second pitch, and then you can tell me if it makes sense. If you're a bank and you want a betterment or a wealth front or a nutmeg of your own, Bamboo will build it for you. Boom. Follow that, Freddie. Uh, making a welcome return, we have Freddie Kelly, who's the CEO at Credit Kudos. Uh, how are you doing, Freddie? Can you uh, remind everybody what Credit Kudos does? Uh, yeah, very good. Thank you. Um, credit Kudos is a uh, challenger credit reference agency. That means we help uh, lenders and financial institutions make better, more accurate decisions by leveraging new data, uh, particularly open finance and open banking data. Damn, that's not bad, is it? I think Ned is he's up there with you, is Freddie. Um, this is this is all uh, great, and I think we've got um, some incredible guests. So uh, let's get started. Just be, just before we kick off on the discussion, uh, I just wanted to set the scene with a quick recap. Uh, so uh, at 11FS, we think about four factors that really contribute to a successful fintech hub, and those are talent, capital, demand, and of course, policy and regulation. Fintech hubs are often defined by the cities, but they can also be regions, countries, or even hotspots in a city. Uh, People often talk about Level 39 in London, for instance. Uh, Although hubs can be found anywhere in the world, in recent years, especially London, Silicon Valley, Singapore have stood out really as arguably the hubs, although I'm sure Hong Kong would have a thing or two to say about that. Other regions are snapping at the heels, though. Um, Berlin, uh, Station 9 in Paris, Luxembourg, Hong Kong, New York, Charlotte, Atlanta. Uh, There are an emerging sequence of hubs, and it seems like fintech hubs has been a trend in recent years. And indeed, we're seeing that increasingly across the Middle East uh, and uh, Africa and elsewhere. Uh, And Latin America has really taken off. So, 
it's an interesting time for fintech hubs. Um, but fintech uh, funding has really exploded in the UK uh, for the last few years with an increase of VC investment of around 500% in the last few years compared to 170% for the USA, 133% for Europe. We did a show on Brexit's impact on London. Um, we've also looked a lot at the uh, sort of pandemic's impact on London. But Freddie, seeing as you are in London, um, do you think London's really at risk or was at risk pre-COVID? And do you think the pandemic's going to have this bigger impact? What are your reflections now? We're sort of a few months into this thing. You know, has business gone away for you? Is is London seeming like a, a less exciting place to be? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question. This feels slightly disingenuous because I'm actually in, in North Yorkshire right now, but I'll, I'll just pretend that I, I haven't escaped to the countryside because uh, <laughs> it's a better story. Um, but uh, I, I think, I mean, the first thing to say, it's, it's, a, it's a global pandemic, right? And, and obviously, you know, sadly, that does impact certain, um, certain areas more than others. But you know, when we talk about sort of developed economies and, and fintech hubs, um, you know, you, you could sort of in a very broad definition, say that, you know, whatever has happened in one place has sort of happened in another. Um, and I think um, certainly for our, our sector, which is which is primarily lending, there's naturally been, you know, a, a real impact because, um, you know, customer uh, financial circumstances have just overnight, you know, really changed. There's been a lot of regulatory change and I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, and so, you know, risk is, is just completely different. Um, but interestingly, that that also means that, uh, you know, big banks that would traditionally operate on on quite long running cycles in terms of how they they change credit policies and change uh, technology and and providers have suddenly started making changes very very quickly. Um, and so, whilst there's there's definitely some uh, reduction in in sort of growth, there, there's also some really big opportunities that that come from it. And the way I sort of think about this is from the the broad lens of you know what what is fintech and you know fintech is is kind of this this digital transformation journey that we're all on and, and whether that's building banks ourselves or trying to get existing banks to change or trying to build, uh, you know, sort of sell the shovels and, and try and help them do that. And, you know, if there was a, a change in, in sort of economic circumstances that was going to force us get to go from sort of branch-based paperwork, face-to-face -face relationships to digital online um, quickly, then, you know, look no further than, than COVID-19, right? Indeed. But I mean, Purely tactically, I mean, are you guys going back to the office? Are you even going to have an office? I've spoken to some fintechs who have just gone, we're not going to have an office anymore. D does that mean that we don't need to be um, at least London-centric anymore? We can be more UK-centric. Is where, where are people going to be based? And, and what are your thoughts on that? We, we were, So we were pretty uh, distributed and sort of remote-friendly prior to, to the, the the shutdown or the lockdown um we we have sort of certain functions now that um you know have operated you know almost with no difference so so particularly like engineering teams and and people that kind of deep in and kind of continual uninterrupted work that that almost you know in, in some cases are more efficient working from home um and so there, there's definitely an argument to kind of this hybrid approach which is the route that we're looking at whereby we have an office it's not as big as it perhaps would have been, you know, pre-COVID, and it, it doesn't necessarily have enough room for everyone to turn up at once. Um, but we then can kind of circle in different units and and have people that sort of work in different functions using the office. Uh, you know, there's still uh, a need for an office and a base for you know commercial conversations and relationships, but also, uh, and you know, certainly in the UK, our, our customers are distributed all over the place. So uh, you know, there's there's no particular reason to be 
just in London for us. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a hybrid approach and it's, you know, um, I, I think I'm seeing a lot of, of companies doing something similar. Yeah, pretty couple of interesting points there that uh, real estate doesn't go away. It changes shape and it changes function and it changes what it needs to do. Um, And I love that point you made previous to that as well, as I reflect on it, which is how do you manage the credit cycle if you're a big bank when there has never been a credit cycle like uh, 20% drop in the entire economy in, in the space of a month? And actually seeing what's on people's balance sheets right now and seeing into bank accounts right now is is a phenomenal way to do that so it's a real mindset shift to to what you need to do and how you need to react and how data can can kind of help you so i'm gonna i'm gonna shift gears a little bit ned i'm gonna bring you in i'm sure there's a bunch of points you want to pick up on there and and we we can do that in a second i just absolutely uh think it's so worthwhile stepping back and just exploring the singapore fintech scene just just uh for a second first which is you know give us the overview there's been virtual banking licenses really brought out recently uh how much has that changed the scene in singapore because there was already a, a fintech hub that was kind of happening there there's a reason your business is based there so so what are your reflections on that and then any follow-ons to, to freddie's points sure absolutely um so yeah, I think you saw my my hand up on the video call. So Freddie, I d- would definitely love the debate because I'm a I'm an office I'm an office fan. So th- we're, we're interested to get into that debate. But I think so. I've been based in Asia for about thirty years. So I came out to Asia in uh, 1990. Half my time in Hong Kong and 16, 17 years in Singapore. But uh, Simon, you mentioned that Singapore's already a fintech hub, and there's never one defining moment. But perhaps I could pick one up. Four years ago, when the MAS, the regulator, said that they were going to hold a fintech conference. And I remember there were two gentlemen, Sopnendu and Roy, who said, we anticipate 10,000 people at the first event. And everybody was a bit of, okay, that seems ambitious. And we they did it in about six months. We turned up at the first event, and I think there were 14,000 people there. And we had queues at our booth. And this was a regulator put together, government backing. And you could really, t- and then each year it's gone from 10,000 to 20,000 to 40,000. I think in 2019, there were 60,000 people there over. We, we almost don't have a conference center big enough anymore. And what has powered that? It's a bit of everything. The regulator, the government, even in government speeches as much as three years ago, it was clear that fintech was becoming this pillar of the economy. So there's just been a tremendous amount of push, both governmental, regulator, VC capital. You mentioned that there were four things, I think, capital, demand, talent. But I also, I think it's encapsulated in one thing, which is belief. There is a belief that Singapore, and I'm biased, so I'm in Singapore. And I used to live in Hong Kong, so I know you said apologies to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong's an amazing city too, But I think the belief just started growing. Like Silicon Valley's had belief for how long? 30 years, 40 years. So I think, so yeah, I think the Singapore scene and the digital bank licenses, what happened was non-bank supplied, Razor, a gaming company, Grab, the Uber of Asia, multiple people applied who weren't in finance. And I think it really, people were like, a gaming company running a bank, a taxi company running a bank, okay, the world is now different. So I do think the digital bank licenses are making a huge change. 
That's really exciting, isn't it? Because now brands are doing things that look like banking, but it's it's done in a, a different way and it's a new license category and it's getting closer to the consumer context. So banking starts to appear where your need is and where your where your, where the job to be done is rather than um, at the branch. And so that's a, that's a fundamental shift. Exactly. I think there has been that. And while those licenses aren't yet granted, it's clear that whatever you saw in Hong Kong, there were five licenses for digital banks. So they will be there. Um, to jump onto Freddie's question. So I, uh, I just posted a plea on LinkedIn to save the office, to be in the office, to have, I think my thought is it is the heartbeat. So I think the narrative has been work sucks and going to the office sucks. That's been the narrative. So I'm unfortunately old at 53, and it was always told TGIF, right? Because it's not been fun going to the office every day. But what if the office was amazing? What if all the energy, the passion, and the innovation was in the office? It's not binary. I don't think it's like when Twitter mentioned everybody work from home. Now, I should not roll my eyeballs at Twitter because they are a million times bigger and better than us, but I had a secret little eyeball roll. I, does anybody never want to meet anybody again and stay in the office? So I think energy, passion, innovation comes from putting people together in a, an amazing space. And the office can be a place people are dying to go to, love to go to, want to go to. But it does take a shift in thought process. And maybe who and what you do and, and, and your own personal perspectives on that. Marina, you've been very patient as the gentlemen that went through their respective scenes. But um, the US fintech scene has often been accused of being a bit slower than the UK. Um, but during the whole COVID-19, we've seen so many different solutions being brought forward, whether it's uh, PPP or others. You know, Fintechs have really made a difference uh, for the consumers. And uh, every other day I hear about a new challenger bank popping up in the US, whether it's Ramp or Current or Point.app or there's just so many exciting things. And you guys were kind of at the forefront of, of a lot of that stuff. Do you think COVID-19 has accelerated that? Or do you think that it was kind of already there and it just took a little bit longer given the, the federal system or, or something else? What are your thoughts? We've seen phenomenal growth in account acquisition and all with that because as people have come to digital banks. I think we've also been doing a lot during COVID-19 to help customers because we understand many of them you know, are not able to go out, have access to the funds. So what we've done is a couple of things. We offer our ACH payroll deposits to customers two days early for all customers, including early access to their stimulus checks and unemployment compensation, really giving them access to their funds more quickly. We raised ATM withdrawal limits to $750 to reduce people having to go to a physical ATM for expenses that they have to pay with cash. We've adjusted remote check deposit limits to remotely accept treasury checks. Again, helping people get access to their funds quickly. Um, we've shared topical information through a borrow money blog on information like how to access unemployment insurance, when to expect your economic impact payments, as well as you know tips for families staying home because so many families probably were, had not experienced everyone being home at the same time, or even people having to work and look after their kids or teach their kids at the same time. Because you know we've been fortunate and we've been growing, unlike a lot of other companies, we've continued to hire 
both additional customer service agents who are really singularly focused on being able to help our customers. And we also focused on really putting customer first during that seven days a week, especially during these challenging times. We've also continued to um, hire in other departments as we've expanded across the company to you know, hire in marketing and risk and engineering and communications. And we're really ramping up partnerships to bring forward companies that can help our customers. So we've had a very successful partnership with a company called Steady, which help our customers apply for gig work through their platforms. And we're excited to continue working with partners that will really expand the opportunities that we can bring to customers. So kind of as fintechs kind of have become more than just banking relationships, we can expand and help the customers in other ways. Um, And I think you'll find unlike other countries, but what has held fintechs back probably a little more is our regulatory scheme is not as advanced in recognizing fintechs or different ways of banking as compared. I think Singapore really has done a lot to help the whole concept of fintech banking and the UK regulators have also been more advanced in that space. And then I am very, so I like going into the office and I think that with COVID-19, we will find there will become more balance and we probably will have more people who will work from home or more remotely part of the time. But I do think you do want people to come into the office. And I think Freddie kind of said it's where you may not have everybody in the office at the same time, but you will want to bring different teams to come in at different times. So I think the whole use of offices will change and the makeup of teams in the office and how teams work in the office will change. That's a perfect cliffhanger uh, for the next section of the show. But first, uh, we're just going to take a quick pause and hear from our sponsors. So we'll be back in just one second. This podcast is brought to you by Equinix. Equinix is the world's largest global platform of interconnected data centers, enabling fastest application performance, lowest latency, and a digital ecosystem for financial services. Its platform of over 200 data centers worldwide protects, connects, and empowers the mission-critical infrastructure for over 10,000 businesses. Find out more at equinex.co.uk. Okay, back to today's show. I'm going to ask the question. Freddie, a fintech hub's dead. You're in, you're in North Yorkshire right now. Fintech hubs must be dead. Half your engineers work remote. They must be dead, right, Freddie? <laughs> I mean, arguably, North Yorkshire is its own uh, fintech hub, but that's probably a, a conversation for a different, a different show. Um, I, I think it, it's still an engagement point. It, it doesn't have to be sort of physical, as we've already talked about. So, you know, being in London um, doesn't necessarily mean being in London all the time. And, um, you know, we, we just heard, um, you know, the, to, to your sort of fourth point on the, the four prongs of a fintech hub, how, how the regulators play such a crucial role. And, and for us being so close to the, to the regulator and, and such an innovative regulator in the FCA, um, is really valuable and and you know we do pop over to uh to, to stratford and see them quite regularly and, and and now obviously have have plenty of zoom calls and things like that so it, it's still a, a kind of collection of entities that is brought together geographically that that kind of makes it a fintech hub there are certain things that sort of somewhat eroded you could say and and you know as as people work more remotely uh, and and prove that that works you know arguably to, to go to one of your other um, sort of prongs of, of the, the hub talent is now more 
broadly available to us because if we can all get on board with the idea that we don't all need to be in the same place then we we can hire the best people no matter where they are and and get great value from that and, and indeed you know there are at least five or six people working in our business now that that i'm yet to meet because they've all been all been hired during the the the, the lockdown so i think it does give us some flexibility but i, I still think fintech hubs exist and and it's it's a, a collection of resources that that make them exist and the fact that we call it london is probably less relevant more the fact that you know it's it's a commonality between those people it's a network it's a venture capital network it's it's a talent network all those things yeah it's it's, it's all of those things in, in combination i think it's an interesting point freddie that um yeah the regulator and i like ned's point about confidence um a lot of what the uk i think did originally was have the chancellor and the prime minister stand up and say this is level 39 uh, and kind of the optics around there being a physical space in the heart of all of the banks really sort of changed a conversation and then some of the innovative policy that um kind of came up around uh, the the sort of uh, re- license with restrictions that the uh, Bank of England and the PRA granted to the challenger banks, which we're now seeing translated by other hubs into the virtual banking license, this kind of other thing, uh, which actually has higher capital requirements than the license with restrictions, which all all these little nerdy nuances kind of make it different, but they, they force you to domicile somewhere. They force you to have a legal entity at least somewhere. Some of your talent can be elsewhere, but there's something about that physical geography net, isn't there? Yeah, like it's an interesting point about level 39. So we're based in Singapore and we have one, well, we now have two, but about a year ago, we wanted to put one employee in, we wanted to open Europe and we wanted to start in the UK. So where did we put that person? Level 39. We sponsored a couple of talking events. We made sure he put his bamboo hoodie and his leaflets on every table. When every walk around came from different banks, we were there so I, you know, we saw London as a hub and Freddie, I'm sure North Yorkshire is uh, beautiful. But if I had put my, uh, my, my guy in North Yorkshire, would he have had the same visibility? And, 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 and like, I think there's this idea that in the last three months, work from home has worked. And I, 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 I'm not such a believer. I think it's worked that we can all do it. But what, what, why has it, why is London a hub or Singapore? It's because it's a collective of people, as Freddie said, a community who talk and come up with ideas. Like you sit in the cafe of level 39 and it feels like fintech, right? It feels like fintech, whether it really is or not. I'm not sure. And I'm not saying work from home doesn't work. We get things done, but is it a hub? I'm, I'm a strong believer that. You know, if you for a foreign firm to open in a new country, the essence of a hub, I, I, I would say, is still essential. That's interesting. It, it, how much of that is the physical space, and how much of that is the sense of community, and and how much of that sense of community has has kind of bled over into working from home. I've spoken to a lot of fintechs lately who said their productivity has actually increased rather than decreased. Um, And that maybe can only work because there are already the relationships that were in place that were formed in person, but they're seeing a real productivity spike. And you can see that in your sort of outputs and outcomes that those businesses are having. So there is something about this balance that becomes quite interesting to, 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 I think, to what you spoke to earlier. But, But if productivity increases, can we measure how has innovation done? Are we in, you innovate when a group of people randomly talk in an office with different ideas and you overhear an idea? It's very hard to tell in this 
three or four month period of COVID, has innovation increased or decreased? And I don't know the answer, but I'm quite a strong believer that innovation is accidental, not planned over a Zoom call. Interesting. What about the US perspective on that? I would agree with what Ned has said. I, I think in many ways, what has worked over this three or four month period, it will be interesting to see whether it can be done on a sustained basis. And I also think I agree with Ned that a lot of the reasons we're working well together is because of relationships that formed when we were physically working together. And so it will be interesting to see if you completely stay virtual, can you still do the same culture as you're onboarding people who've never physically met each other, who've never physically worked together? I mean, you often talk about the um, cooler, con- you know, conversations at the water cooler or conversations when you're getting coffee. And that's when people meet, they form these informal relationships that actually then sometimes lead to the kernels of innovation as people talk together. I think one of the things you find with the hubs is that also you get concentrations of different talent pools. And I think that's also what has driven the hubs. For us in Silicon Valley, it's the concentration of the engineers and the design people that you may not find as much in other uh, physical locations. Freddie. I I was just going to say, and and to be clear, I I love being in the office too, uh, just because I I feel like I've suddenly started (laughs) on the side of an argument that I don't actually want to be on. But um, to, to, to Marina's point, uh, there's an interesting thing that, that we're yet to discover, which is this sort of like idea of the water cooler conversations. And I think one of the things that's really interesting that's happened right now that isn't working from home is the fact that everyone is working from home. And, and that's not just your organization, it's other organizations. So there's no possibility that context or information is lost through some people being in an office and some not. And when we switch back to some people being partially in an office, it's it's not the same as everyone being forced to be at home. And, and at the moment, every bit of information is going through Slack. It's going through email because it has to. But as soon as you start having face-to-face meetings where people are talking and the outside part of the company isn't there, then it's it's arguably not going to be as efficient. So that I definitely think it's it's a it's a bad assumption to just kind of think that you know this hybrid model will just work without you know putting mm. investing time in how you structure it. There's a really uh, interesting um, sort of anecdotal feedback I've had from a number of companies who say that their remote staff who were remote before have seen their level of like uh, connectivity and engagement with the rest of the company improve. So they've really enjoyed everybody being remote because it's put everybody on the on the same level. And then there are some people who love the office who are hating this and are just sort of not feeling it at all. Um, but it's forcing certain habits that make international communication really good. So you have to get better at writing things down. You have to get better at sort of uh, sharing that in the written word and things like that. And there have been some examples of, of innovation. Um, so Cabbage um, accepting PPP loans, Square doing the same. I mean, uh, you know, Marina, from the US perspective, you spoke about loads of things that Vara are doing um but uh freddie you were involved in something that uh happened over a weekend where nobody was in the same room that was quite innovative right <laughs> yeah yeah so uh um i'm wondering how many times we're going to use this story <laughs> hey it's, it's in the show notes uh, I, just... I need to I'll, I'll put it on recording and we could just replay it um no no sorry i'm being unfair um so, so i think re- really interesting was the, the sort of byproducts as, as simon says of like you know everyone being at home and especially 
um, you know, the, the kind of weird dynamic that that creates. And one of the things we've seen is like, you know, more social life coming into the, the office and more sort of a blend in, in a healthy way. Um, and obviously it's, it's important that, you know, those things don't overlap in an unhealthy way. Um, and we were chatting with uh, the guys at Fronted um, and uh, through a kind of a long sort of Twitter debate with yourself, Simon, um, uh, and Jamie and, and Simon Vanskalina ended up formulating an idea quite sort of a, a month or two ago um, to help the government in their administration of potential remedies for people that are uh, self-employed or, or that were sort of falling between the, the gap of full-time employed and um, a small business where they, they can apply for grants and remedies um, in light of coronavirus. And so we had this idea to build a tool that would allow those individuals to really quickly validate um, their their potential loss of income or the the, the shock to their income uh, and generate a sort of a form of collateral that would allow them to to kind of get assistance either through a government scheme or a private scheme or or whatever it may be and so the kind of interesting thing about it was that it it formed really quickly a bunch of people from the fintech community got involved and and again people that you know to ned's point knew each other um before and 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 were were linked through the london fintech ecosystem got together and, and built this tool over a weekend and, and sort of rolled it out. So it was it was something that, you know, arguably wouldn't have happened were we all at the office as normal. Strange times create strange things to happen, surely. But we've also seen um, a number of organizations expand internationally. Um, so, you know, Revolut's been moving into more markets and, and other organizations have been really, really thinking about that in that time frame and, and shipping, you know, kind of capabilities at a, at a rate of knots. Uh, I wonder how much um, the internationalization and the link between different fintech hubs is, is going to start to, um, you know, really help companies who've established something in one market move somewhere else. Because, you know, Ned, you've seen some folks come into Singapore, but you've also seen Singapore start to export what it does around the world. Indeed, you're in you're part of that journey. Do you think the hubs can have an element of connectivity? I know um, the Her Majesty's Treasury are looking at something called FinTech Bridges, I think it was called, and um, a lot of other initiatives are like that. The FCA has something called GFIN, um, the Global Financial Innovation Network, which um, I'm, I'm going to have to say there ain't nothing like a GFIN, baby, um, because the FCA just make me say it. They hold a gun to my head every time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they, they, you can get them as a new sponsor of the show if you say that every time, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but I think Freddie's point is a really good point. What happened was Freddie did some great innovation with people who already knew each other. And I think hubs have been amazing for that. So to, to mention something, you know, at, in November of 2019, 60,000 people came to a convention center near the airport in Singapore. And the amount of different people that were there and different companies and the amount of connections that were made with people from London, New York, Europe, Africa, and many, many different places was extraordinary. And we were able to connect. So we we actually have clients in America. We have an offices in San Fran, New York, London, Johannesburg. We have clients out in the Middle East. But a lot of this was created because we met people. I'm, I'm a, a, one of my colleagues at work, Hadja, says this word, beautiful chaos. I really like this concept that fintech is a bunch of people who want to do something amazing, but it's pretty chaotic. I think we can all agree that startup world is more chaotic than corporate world. But I think the hub idea of every so often putting all the people together creates the ability. So I do think it's transported. But maybe to Marina's point as well, 
what happens if you're, what if you've got two new companies who started during COVID? Are they ever going to connect? How do they connect? If there's no hub, no conference, no get together. So we've all met companies in our journey that we can connect with. But what if you took two brand new companies who started in April of this year in two different locations? How are they going to meet each other if we don't have the hub? Yeah, so I'm going to play devil's advocate because this is quite fun. Um, I don't disagree. Um, but if you're familiar with GitLab, um, they're one of the famous uh, all remote companies. Um, so their their policies, everything is remote. They they do meet up, um, but but everything is remote. Uh, and there are projects that are entirely remote that run sort of quite successfully. Um, but I wonder how much of that could be you know a regulated activity. I think it's a fair question. I'm going to change gears slightly because I'm I'm kind of interested uh, to Marina you made a point about uh, increasing ATM limits. You made a point about getting access to cash. Cash is something that's still really, really important for the financially excluded. But how much is that you know, going to be an option in the future? And how much do you think that there's an incumbent fintech conversation to be had here about the ability to give somebody an end-to-end digital service, everything from onboarding to paying their utility supplies to getting gig work? Is the customer going to expect that more in the future? Do you think cash is going to decline in use? It had been sort of steadily. Are we going to see a sharp drop-off? Or you know, is this still something that's going to be um we're just going to snap right back to normal and the incumbents have got all the deposits at the moment and the fintech starts to disappear how does that play out well i I think that the use of cash is actually declining in the sense of people are more used to paying things digitally sharing you know bills with each other without having to actually transfer cash between each other and i do think going back is one of the things that they will look for their fintechs is really to be more than just their bank or be more than just a single offering. And really, they're looking for the bank or the financial institution or the fintech to provide more a marketplace of different services that will help them. And so they will look for a more a bigger role for the fintech to play. And just switching gears back for a minute on the reg- on the side of how you could have different geographic fintechs. I mean, one of the, or hubs, one of the things we've actually seen is the regulators in some of these countries have made a tremendous reach out. We've had visits from Singapore, we've had visits from the FCA. And so the regulators themselves are trying to attract entrants from other countries to come there. And I think that will also help spread this concept of a fintech hub in the sense of making them more geographically open to com- to companies from other countries. It's going to be interesting to watch, isn't it, as as different innovation starts to um, sort of cross-pollinate. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting idea. Ned, you had a point to make there. Yeah, like I, we talk and we're all sat in different locations in London, Singapore, and the US, just, you know, thinking through the debate. I'm 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 definitely a believer in that physical connection in the hubs, but I'm wondering if this is an opportunity for one of the countries or one of the cities, the up and coming ones to really, you know, as we get through COVID and if we start and, you know, nobody knows, we, we don't know what this playbook is, right? We are not sure how it goes, but I'm wondering whether this is start of a change of hubs, right? So, you know, we have one over overall digital hub. So perhaps we create one global digital fintech hub. And then whether maybe it, it's still Singapore, but other places could take this as an opportunity to to grow and 
and do more because I, you know, we've had hundreds of years of London, Singapore, and in the last, you know, five or 10 years, they became fintech hubs. Do I think that a three-month change in the way it happens means that it's changed completely? I, I, I'm not such a buyer of that narrative. Do I think it changes? Yeah. And if I was, and I say with all respect, a smaller fintech hub, I would definitely be thinking about ways to put my hand up more to say, what is the opportunity, both from a virtual and a real way to say, okay, what can I do to step up here? It's interesting. Uh, when you said Singapore is the fintech hub, I saw Freddie and Marina's face both change. Uh, Freddie, uh, repost, please. Uh, speak, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to give you that. So I want, I mean, I, I, I lived in, in San Francisco for a while. I, I've worked there. I, you know, I don't think I'm not in this kind of zero sum mindset of, of there having to be one. Um, I think, you know, obviously London has a, a massive, massive financial services um, legacy and history that, that, that kind of gives us a, I'm getting a head shake. This isn't this isn't good enough. Sorry. Yeah, London, no London's London's the best. <laughs> I, uh, I, that's what we want. Go honestly, on. Simon, I only unconsciously said it. I did not realize till after you picked up on it. I saw all of you on the video looking at me, and I was like, "What did I just say?" But I will stand by it. <laughs> Maybe I can I can diplomatically avoid the question, but I, I did I did wonder as as you were talking whether there's an argument that says you know within fintech we have specialisms in, in terms of how the, the hub ecosystem or whatever we want to call it is sort of structured and, and you know maybe london has its its you know bread and butter being i don't know wealth management or whatever you want to think of it and, and you know san francisco and singapore have, have their own too or you know whether we start to see sort of further specialism and, and those communities building up around a certain a common uh, thread there's an interesting idea. It's like, what's the superpower of your hub? Um, if London's, to my mind, is policy innovation, uh, it's the first to do the um, sort of uh, license with restrictions that other hubs pick up and do better. It's the first to do open banking. I would argue Australia has done open banking in a much more complete way um, since having watched it. I look at Singapore and I see uh, a really, really quick adapter to innovative ideas that takes it and runs with it and does something more and further and deeper. Um, and, and can really do similar to how Australia is. And I look at the US and I think this is the home of, you know, really the private sector doing things that the public sector can't. Every, you know, if you go right back to Visa and MasterCard, but even Plaid to these days um, and sort of, Great innovation happens almost in spite of the regulation, not because of it. Um, Marina, would you agree with that, or would you say I've I've mischaracterized? No, I, I think compared to a lot of the other countries, the regulators have been lagging compared to in embracing, you know, open banking and embracing the fintech innovation. I think when Varro gets its charter, it'll be actually the first time you will actually see the two worlds kind of mixed together where you've got a fintech coming into the traditional banking world that the regulators are used to working in. Um, so I do see it, but I do see the regulators showing an, um, an interest in becoming more innovative. And so this would be from, and you know, what makes it a little more difficult is the US has a very split regulatory system, which I think also makes it difficult in that there's not one regulator there on the federal level, three regulators on the state level, you have, you know, 50 more regulators so there has to be some kind of harmonization of the regulators really to be able to match the other fintech hubs regulatory schemes. 
Indeed, and you see some states, um, you know, sort of really uh, like the NYDFS, for instance, has such a such a strong position on a lot of this stuff, given so much financial services has been there. But not to discredit sort of uh, everything that happens out of Atlanta or uh, North Carolina, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of banks based there. Um, even Arizona uh, and other parts of really in Utah have seen little fintech hubs popping up. I mean, of course, Marketa and MX Data are all based out of out of uh, Utah. So the really interesting hubs forming in different parts. Of the US. And I guess this was to to Ned's point in that you may have these dominant major hubs, but these sort of um, secondary ones that are really feeders that can be equally successful, if not more so. Um, Freddie? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, th- I think the other angle to look at this from is is capital, which is one of the points you raised early on. And, and what's been really interesting, and I know there's been a lot of showboating uh, with, with VCs on Twitter and stuff in the past few months, but venture capital fundraising in, or any other kind of fundraising has always been like a very in-person process, it, it, you know, at least from, from my own experiences, you know, it's always been you know, certain amounts, obviously, for sure, you can you can do remotely, but but generally, there's a lot of FaceTime, uh, and and one of the outcomes of this pandemic, we've seen it is that you know people are raising you know significant amounts of, amounts of money without you know a lot of face to face time or in some cases any at all, and so you could make the argument that now you know people that, that sort of aren't in one of these hot prime locations or fintech hubs or perhaps are in, in some of the more emerging areas can start to raise money without being co-located with, with the VCs themselves. And, and that could start to make sort of interesting impacts on, you know, those specialisms we just talked about, but also the, the, the breadth of hubs themselves. Interesting to watch, isn't it? I was speaking to a VC who was about to sign their first $2 million check for somebody they've never met before. And they, they, there was definitely an element of nervousness there. Uh, and there is something about uh, everybody has a number at which they need a human bit of contact. Uh, it's different for different people. Um, but it, there's something really powerful in that the machines can tell you so much, but it, eventually a human wants that human touch. And, and it, it, it is sort of horses for courses, but it's, it's pretty consistent, Ned. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, you know, we've probably all watched that AlphaGo documentary with DeepMind. And it says that Go is a very simple game, but the great players play it with intuition. And I was talking with a VC, we're doing some raising right now. And he said, look, we really want to give you money, but how are we going to break bread? And he said, I've never given somebody a check without looking them in the eye, sat across a table and felt in my gut that this feels good. And I'm a I'm a huge believer with that too. And, you know, to Freddie's point, you know, uh, and, and, and maybe just to tease Freddie a little bit, maybe North Yorkshire will become the VC capital uh, of the world. But his point is right. Like we, we have existing investors. It's easier to get, not easier, but you've met them. They know you. But I think it's a really good point. I think that is the big change. Perhaps not the office, but the VC, the money. Because in reality, they're gonna, there is going to be getting used to giving money without that breaking bread, without sitting down, without that FaceTime. And I think that's hard. I, I genuinely, I'm a huge believer. You've got to, it, when you get money from an investor, uh, you've got to love them. They've got to love you to start with because they don't love you. To start with, it won't turn out great. And doing that over Zoom, it's a little harder. Love over Zoom is hard. You heard it here first, Marina. <laughs> But, you know, we've been lucky, as you know, we publicly announced we just closed our Series D financing and we raised $421 million. A lot of it was closed during our time of working under COVID and working remotely. But it, it is interesting because it's, it's a mixture of investors who we had met earlier, met face-to-face, and then continue through the journey and close, to some investors we had not met before. 
physically. But it'll be interesting as we go through this, can we continue or can companies continue fundraising, Ned, as you say, when they have not had that chance to have that face-to-face? Zoom works, but does it work enough that it would get somebody comfortable? And are we going to see a lag as um, the lack of first face-to-face contact kind of impacts VCs? You know, we've seen some down rounds. We've seen all kinds of things happening in, in the VC space. And there's probably this dry powder of VCs now looking for things in, in a bit of a different way. Then do we see an uptick of activity? And uh, to Freddie's point, I mean, uh, Ned, do you believe that VCs would be willing to? I mean, they've already had a bit of an international journey, but it, it did feel like you had to go to them a little bit. And the really good one might travel to you if they really believed in a company. Is that changing now? And do you think it will have left a lasting impression and opened eyes to things on a more global perspective? Um, and is that something we can take away from this? That's a great point. Like, you're right. Like, we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're definitely not in the same league as Varo. You know, we've raised a total of $15 million over three rounds. But 100%, we got money from Chicago, from the Valley, from Indonesia. We always went there. So the concept that we might phone them up and say, hey, would you like to pop over and see us because we would like some money from you never never came into my mind because the traditional way. So maybe you're right. Like I think, you know, again, we don't know how long this will last, but I do think it will change how capital is done because, you know, your Zoom and my Zoom, it's the same thing, right? So wherever you are, Arizona, Utah, Singapore, Jakarta, in reality, that is, I, I do think it will change. It's, it's, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, some VCs will jump to it quicker and say, we're comfortable raising money without meeting. And I think for others, it's going to have a really lasting impression. And I'm, I'm going to um, kind of ask everybody to close out their thoughts. Uh, Marina, do you want to start us out with what do you think will be the lasting impacts? Are, are there others on talent, regulation, um, things we haven't thought of or discussed so far? Well, I, I think COVID has actually will have changed the world profoundly in the sense of I think we will see more geographic dispersion and teams working together. I think it will be interesting to see as companies now have worked together without all physically being together, will that also allow, you know, as we talked about, for the capital raising now to be more dispersed. So I think it'll be interesting kind of seeing how the world after COVID has changed profoundly for this. The profound changes, Freddie, do you do you see them as profound changes? And do you see uh, other lasting changes that we, we haven't talked about so far? I, I do see them as profound. And I think, you know, that, that fintech or startups in general, are, you know, are, are some of the companies that, that are best placed in dealing with change, right? You know, I know it's a, a bit of a cliche, but, you know, we, we built companies to be agile and to, to do new things. And um, some of this change, as I alluded to before, has has really accelerated the need for, for a lot of those services that we're providing. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think, you know, this does, um, this does put us in a good place. And I think that as, um, as we've sort of talked about the need to kind of commune around certain, um, you know, maybe not necessarily physical locations, but certainly kind of build relationships through a, a hub of whatever that means is, is going to continue, but maybe that will be slightly more distributed now than it was before. Indeed. And, and there is, of course, always the massive um, personal and social cost of lots of layoffs. But I wonder if that will create a new spike in entrepreneurship. Um, you, you can hope um, that there are these things that would start to come out of it the other side. Uh, Ned, last word from yourself. Yeah, like for us, if we look at it at the lens of what we do. So we design and build 
robo-advisors or savings applications, but they're applications that help people save and invest, and we sell that technology to banks. There's very few banks who would say to us today, hey, we have a better idea than building a digital way to sell our wealth products. You know, in the last three months, it's, you know, like whether it's from all industries, tourism or flying, banking, no one, no one has met a financial advisor. No one's been to a bank to talk, but they are interacting either through voice or through digital. And they think that reality, wealth is, and again, I'm obviously biased because I work in that wealth area, but it, it, it's got a long way to go. Like wealth is still fairly simple. It's saving applications on a phone. Is it purely automated? No. Does it have a long way to go? And I, I think that this last three months, four months of our lives has really shown everybody needs to save and invest. It's clear now, as you say, the world's changed and it's been hard for people. And I think that will be hugely more digital. And I think all finance institutions really realize that now. So yeah, I think it's going to have a profound long chance. Long lasting wealth is, is that ultimate example of a digitized financial service rather than truly digital, which is one of our core messages at 11FS, but digitized being you know, still so many of the wealth advisors are working with the piece of paper or the PDF and talking you through your portfolio on that PDF in 2020 and trying to sit next to you. Or maybe they've got a really nice iPad, but it's a PDF that they're talking you through on the iPad. And that's, that's digitized financial services because it's the paper and digital. It's not a real-time view of the markets. It's not adjusted for your personal beliefs and your biases towards um, carbon neutral or towards uh, responsibly sourced. And, and that sort of data becomes really, really important. That's real-time, intelligent, contextual. So that shift to truly digital, maybe maybe the incumbents have, have kind of grasped that as uh, as they go on, and, and maybe that's the lasting legacy. It's going to be interesting to watch. All righty. Um, so much more to discuss, I'm sure, but that wraps up the, today's discussion. I want to thank you all so, so much for joining me. Um, I'm going to ask you, where can people find out more about you and your company, starting with Freddie? Uh, so uh, my company website is creditkudos.com uh, and I am Fred Kelly on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Brilliant stuff. Uh, Marina? Yeah, you can find more about Varo at varomoney.com and you can find me on LinkedIn under Marina Gracious. Thank you, Marina. And Ned? So we're uh, bamboo.co, bamboo.co. I'm on LinkedIn under Ned Phillips. And because my firm's full of young people, we're on Instagram at Life at Bamboo. Brilliant stuff. And you can find me on uh, at SYTaylor on Twitter, or you can email me directly, Simon at 11FS.com, or just find me on LinkedIn, Simon Taylor. Uh, thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, do remember to subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us make the show better and it helps others find the show as well. Speaking of which, if you know somebody who loves fintech and isn't listening to this show, well, pass it along. Pass on the pod. Uh, tell them all about the show. We'd love any recommendations for guests that we should get on the show that we haven't. Please keep recommending guests to us. Uh, and if you've got any other feedback, uh, find us on social media, search for 11FS or email us podcast at 11FS.com. Thanks very much to our guests and thank you for listening. Bye for now.